We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Boston, and in particular at the Ritz-Carlton Boston Common. My next guest is, in the interest of full disclosure, an old friend and colleague, who I never see in Boston, I never see in New York, I never see in the traditional expected places. I'll be walking through the airport in Cape Town and, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Well, let me tell you what she's doing here. Her day job, which is how I really know her, is she's an executive at public television, but her real passion is what she does in Africa. Her name is Jillian Rose, and she's in charge of something that she founded called the Rosemary Pencil Foundation. And it's something that if you're traveling... You need to know about because it does involve travel. Jillian, tell me about this. You started this. (laughs) I did. Yes. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Yeah. I started the Rosemary Pencil Foundation 10 years ago 
And um, I was one of those, uh, you know, executives going through maybe a slight midlife crisis. And I thought it'd be very nice to give back and do something for other people. And um, so I decided that I would uh, start a non-profit. And uh, for various reasons, I decided I would do it in Malawi. Okay, you said for various reasons. Give me just one. Well, I... You know, growing up, I'm English, and I grew up in the south of England, and uh, my mother had a boarding school, and we had African students. So I was very familiar with Africa and uh, had many friends. And um, I remember in some of my old English textbooks seeing Nyasaland, because uh, Malawi, of course, was a British colony. And um, oh, the- take a look at all of Africa. At some point, somebody else had it. Yeah. Either the Portuguese, <laughs> yes, or, yes. Right, or the Dutch. Yes, yeah. I think uh, we put our flag down there probably in about the 1870s, and uh, of course, it didn't get independent until 1964. But um, yeah, so I um, I did some research, and then I booked a ticket to Malawi. I'd never been. I had a uh, new one person there. Now, and... where in Africa is Malawi? Ah, okay. So it's, um, let's see, it borders on Tanzania to the north, uh, Mozambique to the uh, east, and then Zambia sort of wraps around the south and the west. And it's a little slip of a country, really. There's about 15 million people, and um, it's got the most gorgeous lake that goes through the middle. Um, I think it's the third largest lake in Africa and um, but it's one of those sub-Saharan African countries that's just really desperately poor and um, so I thought that um, maybe I could do something there and um, so I went and I had this plan you know that I would be um, taking school supplies and notebooks and pencils and um, after a few days there I realized that that was a completely hopeless idea because um, well you know just bringing those things into the country is a <clears throat> complete bear because of you know tax regulations and shipping so um, actually on the last day of my few days there um, I met a group called um, children in the wilderness which is a non-profit um, in Malawi, and actually they operate in Zimbabwe as well. And um, a woman there said to me, you know, instead of trying to do this with pencils and notebooks, why don't you think of a scholarship program? And so that's what we do. So we support children in secondary school, and um, we've had more than 100 children now go through our program. And actually when term starts next month we'll have uh, 59 students at school and um, and because I've been doing it for 10 years now it's so nice because some of the students are now teachers um, we've got some of them who have jobs but the nice thing about the program is if you decided to go to Malawi anybody listening to the show mm-hmm. you could get involved yes yeah we work with a number of different schools there and it's um, it's such a rewarding program because these are, you know, teenagers, like teenagers anywhere. And um, without our support, they wouldn't be able to go to secondary school. So, um, and you can imagine leaving school at the age of 13, 14. Well, my, exper- my experience in Africa is if you have a family of four or five kids, the family maybe can afford to send one. 
but they can't get everybody in. Yes, yes, and and of course, um, the boys take precedent. Um, and your focus really is on the girls, too. Yeah, we, we weight it more towards the girls in Malawi, and then I have a girls-only program in Zimbabwe. But, um, no, we've had some really lovely successes, and, um, you know, one of the hardest things, particularly for girls, is there are no role models so it's very hard, you know, when you ask a girl, a teenager, you know, what would you like to do when you grow up? They don't know what women do. You know, nearly all of them say, I think I'd like to be a nurse, you know, because that's that's the only woman that they see in a sort of uniform. But um, Well, when I grow up, I want to be Jillian Rose because, <laughs> because you're doing such good work over there. Let me give everybody the website because this is how you can find out more information. It's rosemarypencil.org. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. www.rosemarypencil.org. And if you go to Malawi, get in touch with them. Yeah. See how you can get involved. Immerse yourself in the actual experience because it's not about just going to a hotel. It's not about just going to a resort. It's, you want to find out how people live in their own communities and be then a part of that community. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? A little bit later in the show, we'll talk about the Boston Ballet. By the way, they're right here. And somebody else is right around the corner is the uh, the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company and their artistic director, if not the founding artistic director, excuse me, Steve Mailer, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me I here. mean, this is a lot of, I'll say this, it's a concentration of culture. It's a very dense cultural area right here in Boston. We're surrounded by theaters and, and the beautiful Boston Common where we perform every summer. And it's just a summertime performance? The company's primary project is this free Shakespeare on the Boston Common, but we do also perform Now, you know, well, I come from New York. We do free Shakespeare on the Park. Uh, yeah, did, you, we, did you steal from us? We did come steal. On. We did, we did, we did. Uh, we all, all good things come from Joe Papp, certainly, uh, out of New York, who founded the, the Shakespeare Theater in, in, in New York. And we're, we travel in his very big footsteps. But you're, you're in Boston. We are. We are. And unlike the Delacorte, we don't have a fixed audience space. So we can have five to 10,000 people on a great Saturday night, which is a beautiful evening in, in Boston. And where are you performing? Literally on the Boston Common. It's right, right out in front I mean, of here. Literally steps from here. Steps from here, right at the Parkman Bandstand. How's the sound? Sound is impeccable. Because the acoustics on the common, my God, it's bouncing off every building. Exactly. Well, that's, that is, is actually the most important design element because the audience is so far away that if they don't hear crystal clear, then it's a problem. Okay, see, if I were doing it, yes. I would do Romeo and Juliet and use some of the buildings and say, what light does yonder, and, and have her in some of the, have her at the Ritz Carlton. She could be hanging out the window. What are you doing next summer? You want to direct for us? <laughs> I'm looking to take Wait, summer no, off. But how about this? You could actually do an entire Shakespearean play using the buildings. We could, we could, we could. Actually, when I started thinking about this idea, I was uh, interning at a, a theater in Chicago, Steppenwolf Theater, which has all these amazing now rooftops. That's a, that's a legendary theater. Oh, it's extraordinary. It was a great, great, great tutelage. But I thought it would be really cool to do a performance on the roofs of Chicago, the, you know, the Chicago sky. Line. Here's the problem with that. It's called liability lawyers. <laughs> yes, lawyers. Are, that's why Shakespeare said, first thing we do, we kill all the lawyers, right? That's right. But seriously, you've got so much real estate to work with here. That you could, and with lighting, you know, you could reveal people and the, the audience would, would have to be look. It would be 360. Absolutely. Talk Absolutely. about theater in the round. Exactly. Exactly. What's your most difficult performance technically to do in, when you're dealing with outside? I think the biggest challenge for us is scale because uh, Shakespeare obviously is a writer that works in scale and he has big vision and big ideas and he has big battle sequences, but they're also profoundly intimate and emotional and and 
deep thoughts that have resonated for 400 years. So it's about trying to find that balance of intimacy and scale in front of 5,000 people is always a challenge. Now, you've been doing this how long? 20 years. And in 20 years, is there one Shakespearean play that people have to see every single summer? I think, you know, we've actually kind of worked around the canon. We've done some of what I would call center of the canon plays like Midsummer Night's Dream and Hamlet and As You Like It. But I've also found our audience really interested in some of the more obscure ones like All's Well That Ends Well and Coriolanus, which we've also done out. And Merchant of Venice? Haven't done that one yet. That's really on the horizon, but I haven't done that one yet. So I would have thought you'd have done that one yet. Haven't yet. It's it's one that we haven't gotten to yet. There's 30 30 odd of them, so we have a few more years to go. Rosencrantz and... uh... We haven't done Rosencrantz and Gil. Wildenstern are dead, the adaptation, the Tom Stoppard adaptation, right. but we have done Hamlet out there with the wonderful, extraordinary Jeffrey Donovan, who's a brilliant, brilliant actor. Is there one particular play that is, I would say, not the one that's the most popular, but the most esoteric, if you will, hmm. that, that people are, it's the surprise for the audience? I think Coriolanus kind of fits into that category. It's a it's a play that we did in the election cycle, and it's a play that really talks about the relationship between the populace and the leadership. So for us, it really resonated very powerfully, but it's not exactly a play that's performed all that often. Now, over a million people have been there, and a typical night is what, 5,000 people? Typical night is 5,000 right. people, right there, right there on the Boston Common. And you've involved your neighbors like the Ritz-Carlton. The Ritz-Carlton's been a, a terrific partner for many, many years, and we're really thrilled to have them in partnership with us. What does we that have, partnership mean? Well, they they do packages. They do lunch, uh, lunch, uh, picnic baskets for us, which is fantastic. But they've also hosted events here for us. Our gala has been here in the past. Um, but we have a lot of wonderful partners who come together to make this happen. The Boston Globe has been a sponsor and supporter. The Babson College is an important sponsor for us. So it's a, it's a community effort. The city of Boston has really embraced us. Have you seen the demographics of the audience change? Are you seeing a younger crowd now? Well, that's actually why I started the company, because I was working at another theater and looking at the theater and saying, not seeing myself in the audience, not seeing young people, not seeing people of diverse backgrounds. And what I love about our audience is it's sort of everybody. It really reflects Boston. And you see young people, you see families, you see people of all racial and ethnic demographics and and uh, social demographics as well. So it's really kind of a a, a meeting ground, which is what Shakespeare really wrote about. I mean, it's what he wrote for. But a traditional perception would be that Shakespeare draws an older crowd. Well, that's exactly. And and that's not what Shakespeare wrote. Shakespeare, when he was writing, was a wildly populist writer. and Shakespeare, when you know, in this country, when this country was being founded as settlers moved west, if they had books, they had two books. They had the Bible and they had the collected works of Shakespeare. There were actually ballroom brawls that broke out over interpretations of Shakespeare. So it's relatively recent that Shakespeare has but bes- no gunfights. I in the OK there, Corral? I think there were actually gunfights. The Capulets, I check my facts the Capulets and the Montagues. Forget the Hatfields and the McCoys. I love it. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. you got to pay with plastic. If you have a coupon... By the way, every week at this time, I also mention our website, petergreenberg.com, for another important reason. That's where you'll find our list of, it's a comprehensive list, by the way, of all the aid and relief organizations all over the world doing all that hard and essential work that actually you can get involved in, you can get immersed in wherever you go, whenever you go on a trip. 
It can be an hour, a day, sometimes even a week. But you can even book in a trip by getting involved and giving back. And what you get back in return is exponential. Trust me on this. And we also like to localize some of the opportunities. And here's one you might not think about, but they do such great work. It's called the Boston Home. It's a residence and center for care of adults with advanced multiple sclerosis. But here's the cool part. Not only can you help them and volunteer in the home, you get to help volunteer and take the people in the home on field trips. You get them out of the home, right? That's, only, that's what you want to do, only they don't always have a choice, except until you show up. So check it out. It's a great way to do it. Maybe two hours a week or two hours on a trip you might be making to Boston. How much of that is, is, is going to be your valuable time that you're going to waste? No, you're not wasting it all. You're investing it. And as I said before, what you get back in return from what you give back is exponential. Check them out, thebostonhome.org, or go right to our website for our complete list of all those aid and relief organizations. A little news item I want to report, which uh, it's like a weekly update. And uh, this will give you an idea of stupid passengers. Here it comes. It's the TSA Week in Review. We should, we should actually do a television show called that, the TSA Week in Review, right? Take out your computer. Okay, no, here it is. This is what they got last week. 38 loaded firearms, hatchets, flares, a tomahawk, propane tanks, and more. This has been your TSA Week in Review. <laughs> and they actually sent me this in, as an email, like a scorecard. This is what we got this week. Idiots. Not the TSA. Idiot passengers. What are you doing with a propane tank at the airport? And don't tell me you're barbecuing. I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying it. Hey, let's move on because we got other stuff to talk about. And some of the other stuff we have to talk about is what passengers do who are not stupid. And somebody who knows a little bit about that is somebody who tracks travel trends. She's the vice president of American Express Travel, Laura Fink. Hey, Laura. Hi, Peter. Good. To, uh, thanks for having me. You got it. I'm going to presume that you're not taking any propane tanks to the airport. And as we get to the third quarter and the, uh, almost into the fourth quarter now of 2016, it's been quite a robust year for travel in terms of the industry, right? Sure, absolutely. It's been a great year for travel and uh, looks like things are headed in a good direction from the research we've recently conducted. Well, give me an example because, you know, everybody says they like to travel. Not everybody actually puts their uh, puts their money where their mouth is, but... You know, we've seen a, a slight uptick in the number of passports among Americans, which is always a good sign. We've seen the drop in the euro, which is great for us, not so great for our friends across the pond. Uh, and that becomes, you know, opportunities for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that our research showed is that, you know, travelers are expecting to travel more in the next five years than they are uh, in the past five years. And really, um, what I think is really interesting is that travel has become really kind of a, an investment in a life well-lived. Uh, travelers are seeking you know, meaningful life experiences from travel and investing in travel sort of above and beyond all other areas of their life. Uh, experiences that they can get while traveling have really become sort of the currency and uh, in a lot of ways uh, a measure of success for people. You, know, you talk about it as an investment. I go back about maybe six years ago when the euro wasn't 30% down against the dollar. It was just the opposite and I was, I was in Paris, and I, I, every hotel was full. And this is the interesting part, Laura. Every hotel was full with Americans who were sitting in the lobby complaining about how expensive it was to be there. And I kept on saying to them, well, surely you must know what the euro-to-dollar exchange rate is. Yes. And yet you're here, right? Yes. So what is the problem? 
And they almost all gave me the same exact answer. They said, well, we felt if we didn't come this year, we'd never come at all. It was sort of a last supper mentality. But now that our economy is getting a little bit better, you're suggesting that that last supper mentality is transformed into more of an investment strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think people always want to get those special experiences in travel. And I think now more than ever, people are really looking for personalized experiences, something that's really tailored to them. They're willing to pay for that. Uh, and it's really uh, how people are enriching their lives. And uh, one of the ways people are building, uh, you know, relationships and deepening relationships with their friends, loved ones, and uh, and others. And yet at the same time, we're seeing a huge explosion in technology. Everybody's got an app for something. Uh, everybody's got a smartphone, which, by the way, I just like to suggest doesn't necessarily make them smart. But the point is... <laughs> You, you have this convergence of technology at a point where people are looking for a genuine, authentic experience. At what point do you, you know, where's the tipping point on that? Yeah, Peter, it's a great point. And really one of the most interesting findings from the research we did was that it's really not high technology versus human interaction. It's really the intersection of the two. What we see with the future traveler is they want high tech and they want high touch. Travelers see really great uses for technology, uh, researching destinations, checking in, uh, booking their vacation, and then also really important reasons for the for the personal connection. And uh, and we see really both playing a very important role. The future traveler wants a highly personalized experience, and oftentimes uh, the the service of a travel counselor or travel specialist are going to be needed to achieve that. So it's really the intersection of high-touch and high-tech in the future. And it's the use of the big C word, otherwise known as conversation. I, you know, we just did a piece on CBS News about two weeks ago, maybe you saw it, about a hotel that just opened up in Japan that the entire front desk is robots. And, and, um, and it's interesting because our correspondent, Seth Doan, goes up to the front desk and goes to check in, and the robot goes, Welcome, Mr. Don. Thank you for coming to the hotel. Please don't ask me a difficult question. The minute I heard that, I said, Failure. Failure. Because every question should be a difficult question because it's got some nuance to it. It's got some, it's got some edges. It's got some creativity to it. And, I, and when you talk about a, a, a travel counselor, I think that's what you're talking about, right, Laura? Absolutely. I mean, the travel counselor is going to be able to give you a more bespoke, custom-tailored experience, and that's really what people want. I think the example you're giving is a great one in the sense that technology is able to serve a lot of really important needs. Um, but when things are uh, a little bit more complex for people, we see them really desiring the personal, the personal connection and the human interaction. You know, it's no different than going to the airport and seeing rows and rows of kiosks. And I was at an airport recently and, and needed to get a ticket changed, so I went to the counter. I bypassed the kiosk. I actually was looking for that conversation. Uh -huh. And there were nine uh, counter people at the, at the desk, and I went up there and I said, hey, listen, can somebody help me write this ticket? And they said, oh, no, we can only answer kiosk problem questions. I said, let me give you a hint. The kiosk is the problem. And not only that, you're going to end up without a job if you can't figure out how to answer my question because no one cares anymore. I mean, I, I suppose if you look at travel as a commodity and you're only going to go between New York and Chicago on, a, on, on the same flight every Monday morning for the rest of your life, the kiosk, go marry the kiosk, I suppose. But, <laughs> but, but your, but yeah, your customers... Yeah, I think the kiosk is great and I think we've all experienced that there's great efficiencies and convenience 
from the technology, and we certainly at American Express see that our customers have a strong appetite to engage with us digitally, and we've been building out those capabilities to deliver all of what our customers expect. But absolutely, you've got to be there with the personal service when something is uh, is needed, whether it's a little bit more complex or something isn't working right. That's when really the uh, ability to step in and have that human connection is, is critical. And, and, and that's actually what people reported in the research. They said, when something goes wrong, I want the person. Yeah. But you know what? In order to get it right, sometimes you want the person. I don't mind researching online, but I'm not going to depend on it. I, I, it's sort of like the old days between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev, trust but verify. You know, I'll, I'll go online and I'll interact with American Express or anybody else dig- digitally. But at the end of that, you know, I still want to go to the next step and talk to somebody who's either been there, who's experienced it, or can help me with what is more or less a less than just linear itinerary. You know, and, and I think that's yeah, what, you, I think what, what you guys are looking for. Yeah. No, what you're saying ahead. is exactly what we see. People like to start the research. They like to conduct research online. And then uh, the majority of people say they really value and will pay for the advice, guidance, and expertise of a travel service provider to really help them uh, make the final decision. And, and, and like you said, sort of trust and verif- trust but not verify or, or provide that verification. You got it. Laura Fink from American Express Travel. Thank you for trusting and thank you for verifying. Back with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide from the Ritz-Carlton Boston right after this. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Peter Gimmer here with you from the Ritz-Carlton in Boston and just around the corner from this joint is another joint called the Boston Ballet. And running the Boston Ballet, the artistic director, Miko Nissanen. How are you, sir? Very good, thank you. From Finland. It's a long way. It's a long way, I know. How'd you get from Finland to Boston? Don't well, tell me you flew. I'm not going to buy that one. Huh? Well, my career as a professional dancer took me around the world from uh, then Leningrad to Amsterdam, Switzerland, long time in San Francisco. Well, wait, let's stop right there. Russia was a great place to train. It was it was the ultimate place in those days. I know. I mean, uh, unbelievable. But now you brought all that with you here. Well, you know, you have to share the the <laughs> knowledge. Does Boston love ballet? You know what? Boston does love ballet. There's a very deep penetration into the community, uh, much deeper than one would think, and uh, I'm pretty impressed. Now you do a number of performances that. We well, you know, we know about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody does the Nutcracker. Come on, that's right. We do. You have uh, to do it. We do forty-four of them every year. Forty-four. Can I be one of the soldiers? Well, no. Okay, well, forget welcome, that. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. Yeah. But I mean, I don't care how old you are; it's worth going back to see it again. Yeah, and it's it's really an introduction to our art form. It's a gateway to the arts for many kids. It brings families together. So it's, it's a great place to start. And it is a fantastic classical ballet that relies on that amazing Tchaikovsky score. A number of different ballets around the country, ballet companies, when they do Nutcracker, will involve the local community. Mm-hmm. Do you do the same? We have uh, the largest school in the North America, and we have about 280 kids in three different casts, in between the three different casts. Well, you know, you're doing something very smart. You know why? Because if they're in the cast, their parents are showing up. I know. You and they that. come a lot. <laughs> you see, keep the kids happy. They drag their parents yeah. in. It's a done deal. But overall, we have 100,000 people see the production every single year, and that's pretty significant. That's big. Then there's Swan Lake. 
Yeah, that, but that doesn't go in the repertoire every year. It's sort of every three to four years. Right. What's different about your version of it? Well, you know what? I th- I think Swan Lake has gone through so many changes that sometimes I f- feel like people have forgotten what it is. Today, we do so many different versions of and new contemporary things. I want the Cornerstone classics to be truly classical, so I sort of did a restoration job and some things that have been lost, recreated. For example? Well, you know, the fourth act, um, the story has been told, usually goes on 45 minutes, and that doesn't move the story at all. I narrowed it down to 18 minutes. Uh, gives so you're, you're basically basically appealing to a television audience now. <laughs> well, you, you're curating art, yeah. and you're curating the experience for today's people. What's the most difficult production you do every year? Uh, some of the key classical productions, uh, they're technically very difficult, but I think the hardest thing for the dancers is to jump from a, a Swan Lake to B- George Balanchine's ballet's neoclassical technique and then really contrasting contemporary dance. But at the same time, it is also one of the most exciting things. Have there been kind of fusion opportunities here at the ballet? A little rock and roll? Yes, we've done something to the Rolling Stones. What is that? Uh, that was Christopher Bruce's ballet called Rooster. Oh, of course, Mick Jagger, of course, yeah. Exactly. And but was somebody actually doing their Mick Jagger impression? Well, no, it was about the sort of uh, uh, little sex wars of the 60s in, in England, uh, a little take on that. What have you got coming up that most people may not have on their radar? Well, actually, our next production is uh, a massive production. It's of Marley's Third Symphony. Phenomenal work by uh, American choreographer John Neumeyer, who has run the Hamburg Ballet for the last 40 years. And it is on a one go, from beginning to the end, hour and 50 minutes, sensational work. Wow. How long does it run? Uh, Two weeks. That's a lot of work to put in just for one two-week production. You know, uh, most of our productions, we, we have them for about 12 shows. It's not like a Broadway show that goes on and on and on. We do six different productions a year, plus touring. And the good news is it's walking distance from the Ritz-Carlton. Absolutely. I I think everybody in this neighborhood, they have an extra living room, the Boston Opera House and us there. Not a bad deal. And when was the last time you were back in Finland? Uh, Four months ago, this spring. Yes, go in the spring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we got quite a winter here in Boston this last year. It reminded me of my childhood. It reminded me of Robanyemi. (laughs) <laughs> the last time I came to Boston, I never made it in. The, the train stopped somewhere else. They got they came in buses, you know, because it was that much snow, right? Yeah. It, it never. That was a ballet. That was a ballet opportunity for me, dancing <laughs> around the snow. Do you ever bring snow on board? You know what? In uh, Nutcracker production, in the snow scene, it snows. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel. And playing the radio with no particular place to go. You can always email me with your questions to peter at petergreenberg.com. In fact, let's do one right now. Here's one from Arthur Hanna in Short Hills, New Jersey. I am really interested in traveling to Cuba in 2015 or 16. Since Americans are now allowed to enter with fewer restrictions, are there hidden restrictions to be aware of in traveling there that you need to know of? Visas, currency, credit cards, or car rental details? Well, no. Uh, although I have to warn you, you're not going to be renting a lot of cars. First of all, there are not a lot of cars 
in all of Cuba that date beyond 1955. But forgetting that, uh, they are now accepting credit cards. The blocks have been lifted from Visa, American Express, MasterCard, and Discover. You just have to find a place that actually has a credit card terminal that they can swipe. Uh, you will pay a premium to this point if you use U.S. dollars. Uh, they want you to use a different kind of currency. Uh, and your best bet is to exchange your money for euros and just pay with euros when you're down there. Uh, other than that, there's not a visa restriction. In fact, the Cubans don't even stamp your passport. Uh, but the other restriction you do need to know until the trade embargo is lifted is that you can only legally go there still as a member of an approved travel group or organization in any one of, let's say, 22 categories of people-to-people exchange. And that's outlined on our website, petergreenberg.com. And you can also Google it and find it that way, too. Just make sure that the organization that's taking you uh, on this people-to-people trip is approved by the U.S. Treasury Department and the U.S. Commerce Department. Once that happens, you will be in Cuba. You will also not be spending a lot of time at the beach because it's a rather rigid, controlled schedule to to basically you know perform to the the rules of these people-to-people programs: educational, research, religious, uh, humanitarian, medical, et cetera, et cetera. But if I were you, I'd go now because once that embargo is lifted. You will be going all the way to Cuba to bump straight ahead into a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and this is not what we really had in mind. Go before it changes. Uh, With all due respect, or disrespect to Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, I do this with respect to the Cuban culture, and they have better chicken down there too, by the way. Anyway, speaking of food, how about that for a segue? Love it. You love that. (laughs) Is uh, is Carrie Meister, who's the, actually, she's the pastry chef here at the Ritz-Carlton, although they also call you the pastry supervisor. Does that mean you supervise all the pastry? I sure do. Make sure they don't go anywhere. <laughs> now, you're a local girl. I am. Right? But you went to the CIA. I did. The CIA meaning? The Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, the other CIA. The other CIA. Right. <laughs> then you came back home. What are you doing differently at this hotel? Because every hotel can trot out a pastry chef, mm-hmm. right? What are you doing differently? And by the way, I should tell people, because this is radio, we hate you because you, you're you thin. I work out. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's sort of like the guy who works at the donut sh- mm-hmm. shop doesn't eat donuts. Well, he actually does eat donuts, but, you know, come sweets are sugar. Sugar makes you energetic. Energy makes you move a whole lot faster. So I guess we burn as we eat, and most definitely we are tasting and eating back there. Okay, so let's talk. Let's get down a little bit deeper here. Are you mm-hmm. using different ingredients now than you did nine years ago when you first came here? We are. We are definitely using different products, um, obviously, with um, come the years, come changes, um, and definitely meeting other chefs and seeing the product that they use. Um, and being here in the city, also in New England, you definitely want to use local ingredients. So, you know, more farmers coming in and more ingredients, different. So here's a word that wasn't in our vocabulary seven years ago for most of us. How about gluten? Oh, gluten. Yeah, gluten. Gluten, gluten yes. So definitely um, more challenges with the gluten um allergy or gluten sensitivity. Um, Definitely more ratios have come out with using rice flour and potato starches um, and whatnot, but the challenge is definitely finding um, a product or um, ingredient combination that doesn't leave a weird kind of texture in your mouth with also keeping more of a flavor that's going to um, please your guests. Okay, what's your most lethal dessert? My most lethal? Hmm. Yeah, what's the one that's going to, you know, get me in real trouble i would say don't hold back i would definitely say our popsicles right now what yes so popsicle popsicle now here's why there's one in particular we have a tree on the menu right now 
that is a really fresh, crisp watermelon mint. But let me tell you why it's legal. <laughs> if Go you're ahead. A, if you're a tequila fan like myself. Uh, see, you, uh, here it mm-hmm, comes. Yeah. Here we are. Um, you definitely want to take that little stick, and it's only a one to two bite little guy. Put it in a shot glass, pour a little tequila over it. Gold, silver, doesn't matter. Slosh it around a little bit, and you have yourself a really wonderful adult treat. So basically what you're saying is when Carrie disappears for a while, she's having a popsicle. <laughs> she may or may not be having a popsicle, too. <laughs> is, is that on the menu? It is on the menu. It's actually, it pairs along with um, a salted caramel with a milk chocolate peanut glaze. I love it. You're doing a popsicle pairing. We are, yes. <laughs> yes. Everybody... That's a, a pairing is a bad excuse for getting me to eat something. <laughs> No, it's, they're perfect. And then they come right in front of you, and they're these itty-bitty little guys. You're not going to get full. Really refreshing. Designated driver. Of course. Of course. Yes. Driver. Okay, so that's that's the lethal one. It is lethal. And if, in terms of calories? Who needs to talk about calories? We're going to do that right now. Go ahead, real fast. Mm, low in calorie, high in sugar. Okay. Most certainly. So basically, you're speeding and you're drunk. Yes. Okay. It's good for your soul. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.